ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, my name is Candace King. Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast, where I'm asking others who've experienced their own roadblocks, grief, or tough times to share in how their experiences went on to feed their souls, to talk about the events and passions in their life that allowed them to grow and super bloom into their next chapter. Join me every Thursday for brand new episodes. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey everyone. So today we're back with some more languages, as you can tell from these maps here. And we're going to have a look at the most requested language family we've seen so far, which are the Finno-Ugric languages. And I was a bit surprised by that, but it's clearly a family that has a lot of fans. But if you've never heard of this family, I'm sure you can guess which one it is. It's called Finno-Ugric. So Finno gives us a good idea that it's probably to do with Finnish and Ugric refers to, among others, Hungarian. It's a language family of about 25 million speakers, but it includes 38 languages. So a lot of them are quite small. And in fact, there are only three national languages, which are Hungarian, Finnish and Estonian. And fascinatingly, Hungarian, with about 30 million speakers, accounts for more than half of all Finno-Ugric speakers. 60% of the entire language family are Hungarian speakers. Finnish makes up for about a quarter, with 6.5 million, and Estonian for about 5%, with about 1 million speakers. Now, the Finno-Ugric languages are quite interesting. And we're going to go back to the Turkic languages for a second. There's no relation. But you might remember from the last video that I said the Turkic languages are characterized by the fact that they're agglutinative. So they tuck all kinds of little syllables onto the end of nouns or verbs. And they have a vowel harmony. So depending on the vowel that the verb or noun ends with, you have to use a different vowel in these suffixes that you add to the end of the words. And fascinatingly, the Finno-Ugric languages have pretty much the same system. So it is not surprising that some uh, linguists have assumed that there might be a connection between these languages. And there was probably a lot of contact, but they are not genetically related. And we can see that on a different map.
And just a brief note, if you're interested in these books that I'm using, you can always find the sources in the description box with title and author, so you can look it up there. So right here we have a map of Europe and Asia from about two and a half thousand years ago. And we can see that the Turkic languages originate from the Far East, right here. But the Finno-Ugric speakers are located here in northern Russia, close to the Ural. I think that they probably come from a place a little further south, but the important part here with this map is that we're on two different sides of Asia in terms of origin for Finno-Ugric and Turkic languages. So no genetic relation, but a surprising similarity in their grammar. If you've ever thought about learning a language like Finnish or Hungarian, you've probably heard that there's quite a lot of cases that you have to learn. On average there are 13 cases, Hungarian has 18, Kumi, which is spoken in an area in Russia, even up to 27. But um, since they have no grammatical gender, I think it's probably still easier than German. All right. So, like I said, there are quite a lot of languages in this family. But let's start with the largest one, with Hungarian. And as I've already mentioned, you can differentiate between the Finnic branch and the Ugric branch or Ob-Ugric branch as it's sometimes called. They probably come from a region somewhere down here, um, so south of the Ural, somewhere in this area. And the early Hungarians decided to become nomadic again. They came into contact with different Iranian groups and started borrowing words again. And here in this area, they split up. This is later called Magna Hungaria, and I find this quite fascinating, because they were there um, about 1,500 years ago, and one part decided to stay, and the other part decided to move on and to move further south and then a little further and eventually came all the way here into this area where we have Hungary today. About 400 years passed between the groups splitting up but in the 13th century, a Hungarian monk decided to retrace their steps because they knew about uh, some Hungarian speakers that had stayed behind. And he moved back into this area and he really found these speakers. 
and even though 400 years had passed, they still spoke a language that was similar enough that they could talk to one another. And this Hungarian monk coined the term Magna Hungaria for this area. On this way, though, a couple other things happened. Here in the Asov Sea, they came into contact with Turkic speakers again, where they picked up a lot of agrarian vocabulary. And here they came into contact with Bulgars, where they probably got their name from. So Hungarian is an exonym, so a word given to them from a different group that they adopted, and it probably means something like dendrites. And from there they then moved on through Bulgaria, they had some contact with the Byzantine Empire and then came here into this region where we still have Hungary today. This is called the Pannonian Plain or Basin and you can see that it's kind of a nice area settled in between different mountains. You have the Alps here, the Carpathian Mountains here and then the Balkan here down in the south. So you would think it's a nice place to settle, but initially the Hungarian groups decided to raid the surrounding areas and only after about a hundred years, around the year 1000, became Christianized and then decided to settle. The fascinating thing about Hungary is that this really, all things considered, is quite an isolated language in its current position. And a lot of sort of this Hungarian identity comes from this feeling of having a special language. It's not related to German, not related to the Slavic languages. Um, it really kind of stands out here, even though it's taken on a lot of long words. We said before from Proto-Iranian, from Turkic languages, and of course later under the Long Habsburg rule also from German. But it's still quite unique here. And it's also spoken in some of the neighboring areas, like here in Romania, with some Hungarian speakers in Austria, in Slovakia in the north of Serbia, in a region called Vojvodina. It's usually a protected minority language. So, quite fascinating. And one interesting part about Hungarian is also that for a long time in Hungary, people assumed that there was a connection to the Turkic languages, because as you remember, there's a lot of um, grammatical similarities. And in the 19th century, we were actually sometimes a little disappointed to find out that they were related to the Finns and the Sami all the way up north, who were not riding around on uh, proud horses. So the Finno-Ugric theory was not always quite as popular, or at least not at the start.
So let's switch back to the other map. You can see this really nicely Hungarian being surrounded by Slavic languages, German, and here we have Italian and Romanian, the Romance languages. If we quickly switch back to the map over here, you can also see Hanti and Manzi, which we've mentioned earlier along the river Ob. and before we get to the Finnic part one quick word on these languages in blue here up north and this one here these are the Samoyedic languages and they are quite closely related to the Finno-Ugric languages so to Hungarian, Finnish, Estonian etc they are usually not grouped under Finno-Ugric though. So it's if you go one classification up, you get to a family called Uralic. And that usually includes the Samoyedic languages. There's about 25,000 speakers, one southern variety and the other languages being here, located in the north. Altogether, uh, 10 different languages, if I remember correctly. And they are probably the first that split off from Proto-Finno-Ugric. Hence, they stand out a bit. Okay, I feel like that was the easy part. Now we get to the Finnic part or Finno-Permic part. And here we have quite a lot of languages and frankly a lot of question marks. So you can see here we have all kinds of languages, some quite small located here in the north of Russia, around Finland, and Estonia and my impression is depending on which author you read you're going to find a different classification they are related that much is clear but it's not completely clear which languages go together in one group and which are further apart so we don't really know when they split from one another Usually you will find Kumi and another language called Utmurt, which should also be here in the area, but not on this particular map. They usually put together as Permic and have just under 1 million speakers together. You have the Mari languages so probably it was a little further east um, two standard languages 400,000 speakers 
and the two standard languages have the really lovely names Meadow Mari and Hill Mari. They are both in decline, however. So 400,000 speakers sounds like a lot, but uh, they're, they're shrinking, unfortunately. We have the Mordwinic languages, which we can see here, with uh, 400, 450,000 speakers. And some more here in the north. And it's, like I said, unclear how exactly they fit with one another, how they fit in with the other languages. But they are definitely part of the same group. Now we get to the westernmost part, to Estonian, Finnish and the Sami languages. These are relatively close related, that much is clear. And the Sami languages probably were the last one to split off from the Finnic and Estonian branch. The Sami languages are spoken here in the north, across Finland, Sweden, Norway and Russia. And they are recognized as minority languages in Finland, Sweden and Norway. However, not in Russia. There are about 10 languages with 30,000 speakers. And interestingly, although the topography is quite similar between them, so there's not a lot of changes in landscape, sometimes you have a dialect continuum between the languages, so they just gradually change and change a bit more, and eventually you end up with a different language. And sometimes you have these really sharp boundaries between them, so you cross a certain region and suddenly people speak completely differently. It's probably because these groups were isolated from one another at some point, but there's little written material that would tell us about how that happened in the past. One thing that's really fascinating about the Sami languages is that they also include some unlikely vocabulary for the entire language group. It's probably Paleo-European languages, so very, very old languages that were spoken here before the arrival of any Indo-Europeans, before the arrival of the Finno-Ugric groups. And when they moved in, they adopted these words for the landscape, for animals, for reindeer herding. So these everyday words for their surroundings made it into the Sami languages. And not too much is known about these historic languages, but I find it really fascinating that something like a thousand words that have been conserved here in the far north. And one last word on the Sami languages, the protection they have today is relatively recent. Um, 
They've been protected since 1988 in Norway, 91 in Finland, and 2000 in Sweden. And before that, there was a push for Sami people to adopt the official languages of these countries. So it's quite a good thing that these languages have survived as long as they did. And luckily they are protected now. Alright. Let's get to finish. So Finnish is another one of these fascinating languages that has had quite an unlikely history. You might know that uh, Finland was ruled by Sweden for a long time and here we have the same story as with the Sami languages. Finnish was not used in written documents, so it was only used as a spoken language it was considered not as refined, not as elegant uh, as Swedish. So there was a push for people not to use it. It was only in the 19th century that a lot of attempts were made to modernize the language and to establish it as a national language. So to really standardize it and bring it up to modern times. The language itself, of course, is quite old. And there's a funny little um, document. The first written example of Finnish is from 1450. And it's by a Swedish bishop who was sent to Finland. And he wrote down in Finnish, I want to speak Finnish but I'm not able to. And apparently he made the same grammatical errors that a lot of Finnish learners still make today. So, a difficult language to learn, definitely. Even all the sources, not of Finnish, but Finnic, so a, a proto-language, were found in this area here, in Novgorod. So a city you're already familiar with. There were some birch bark engravings. You might remember I told you about Unfim, the little boy who learned to read and write and left us some engravings of his homework. So we also have some birch bark writings that were in Finnish. And you can see, of course, that the use of a language doesn't always correspond to the actual borders of the nation-state. So we have Finnish in Sweden as well, we have it in uh, Norway, and there's different names for these uh, variants of Finnish. In Norwegian it's called Gwen. And in Sweden, I hope I pronounce this correctly, Mienkieli. They are protected minority languages and it's um, up to debate whether they are actual languages as they are protected, so they have to be languages, or whether they are dialects of Finnish. 
they're quite closely related. You can probably understand them if you know Finnish or if you speak the right dialect. So it's a bit of a, an open question, but it really just depends on how you look at it. Here across the border to Russia, we don't have Finnish, but rather Karelian in the Republic of Karelia. This again is quite a closely related language with about 36,000 speakers. And then we have some smaller ones like Vepsir, uh, Southern Mustip, with about 3,600 speakers, quite a small language, but one of the most conservative Finnic languages. So they, it's a language that has conserved some very old features of the family that have been lost in other variants. We also have Ingrian, you can see here, tiny little dot. Um, it's listed as having 120 native speakers. And there's also Ludic, which I can't see on this map. Again, very, very small language, about 300 speakers, sometimes considered to be a transitional dialect between Karelian and Vepso, probably spoken here in this area. Right, and then of course, we still need to look at the Estonian part. So out of the three Baltic states, the northernmost is Estonia. And while the two southern languages are more related to the Slavic languages, so the Indo-European, Estonian is part of the Finno-Ugric family and related to Finnish. Like I said, Estonian has about one million speakers. And the fascinating thing here is that there's been a lot of influence from German. So about one third of the vocabulary has been borrowed from German. And if you look at the history of Estonia, you can see that it's been under lots of different rules from Germany to Sweden and Denmark to Russia. So quite a lot of different influences. And the language itself has only been an official state language since the end of the First World War, so about for 100 years. Similarly to Finnish, there was a lot of push to revive the language, uh, to modernize it and standardize it in the 18th-19th century, so during a period of enlightenment. And um, so a lot of bringing up an Estonian past again from before they were conquered by Danes and Germans in the Middle Ages. So quite a long period here that was bridged with the use of other languages. One, I think, funny little detail. 
during the Protestant area, so Reformation, the first book in Estonian was written. It was a Lutheran manuscript. And since Estonia was largely Catholic, this first Estonian book was never published. It was immediately destroyed. Too controversial at the time. And here, around Estonia, you can see some more small languages like Livonian or Votic. Again, these are very, very small languages. And Livonian, in fact, has been declared extinct in 2013. However, the fascinating part is it's still being used. So you don't have native speakers anymore who grew up with the language, or learned it at home, who used it as the main uh, means of communication. But you can still learn it in school or language classes. You can listen to it at music festivals with local bands, uh, trying to revive the language, singing songs in the language. So it's performed, it's still being developed and standardized. And I think that is pretty remarkable. Again, especially if you consider the history, the Livonian language was in decline since the 13th century. So, again, ever since the area was conquered and other languages were pushed to the front. And I think and that these attempts at reviving it are really, really remarkable. The uh, Southern dialect is sometimes also considered to be a separate language. It has some um, uh, specific with regards to its vowels. And they're seeking recognition as a language, but largely is still considered a dialect. And then here, this little corner Votic, again, very, very small language, only four speakers listed as native speakers. And then, of course, if you're looking through the list of Finno-Ugric languages, you will find quite a lot of extinct languages, as you can imagine, with such a big language group, such a long history, and often very small numbers of speakers and isolated groups of speakers. And lastly, just a few more words. You might remember when we talked about the Turkic languages, when I said that a lot of them are still quite close. So if you move, if you're a Turkish speaker from somewhere around here and you move over to Azerbaijan, it might sound weird, but you can probably still understand that. Uh, you might not be able to just, you know, go to Tuba and just have a conversation or read the newspaper, but you'll probably be able to notice that this is a related language. There are similar words. With some goodwill, you can probably make out what someone means, you know, some easy communication. And just recently, someone mentioned again that 
for example, Spanish speakers can't just speak Spanish with Italians and be able to hold a conversation. So they can very closely related languages. With the Finno-Ugric family, that's not the case. They are very far removed from one another. They sometimes have a lot of influence from other languages, like we've seen. And um, some linguists have tried to find some expressions that can be understood, for example, in both Hungarian, Finnish and Estonian, and only came up with one single sentence. And even that is borderline. So there's been a lot of influence from other language groups. There have been separate groups of speakers who developed the way they spoke in different directions and no contact between the different branches, which means they've really developed in different ways. And I remember when I moved to Vienna, I met a student from Hungary just come to Vienna to continue her studies of the Hungarian language here and she was really surprised to find herself in some courses that suddenly had to do with you know Finnish or Estonian languages that were really really foreign to her and quite strange. Again I think it's quite a fascinating family with some question marks in its history. So if you like some linguistic puzzles, I can definitely recommend reading up on the Finno-Ugric languages. But I think for today, there was quite a lot of information and a lot of history. I hope you enjoyed this look at some really, really special languages. And I hope it was relaxing, and I will see you again next week. Until then. <laughs>